Welcome, welcome. So, we are into our first official Sunday of the week, of month of fasting, rather. Um, how's everybody doing? Yes, low mood, low energy, sounds about right. <laughs> sounds about right. Um, uh, trust, though, that the Lord has been speaking to you and, um, and that it's actually provided opportunity for you to actually draw closer to the Lord in this time. Um, something I would actually encourage you to do uh, in this month of fasting, if you don't already practice this, I would encourage you to actually get a journal or, or I don't know, keep a, a note on your phone. And at the end of every day, just reflect. Reflect upon what God has actually done, the, the various themes that have come up in your heart. You know, if you're struggling with things, like, oh man, like that, you know, I'm only just noticing that now. Um, take a moment to actually, at the end of your day, to, to write it down and to pray through it. Because oftentimes when God is giving revelation, if we don't actually take the time to uh, put it down somewhere, to write it down somewhere, it's almost like it can just like disappear and we forget about it. Um, but I'm genuinely believing that God is doing a work in this month of fasting. He's doing a work in your hearts. He's definitely doing a work in mine. And, um, and I just want us to be diligent diligent in stewarding everything that God gives us uh, during this month. So I'm going to take a moment to move this. Awesome. Well, if you've got your Bibles there, I'll get you to open up to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. We are in chapter 1. We are in chapter 1. This is uh, our third sermon in the book of Galatians. Uh, we're going to be working our way through Galatians 1, verses 6 to 10 here this morning. So I'm going to read. I'm reading from the CSB, just in case you're reading another translation. You're like, why is Patrick's Bible wrong? That's why I'm reading a different translation. Um, it says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, and I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am, I trying, or am I striving to please people? If I were still striving to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so just a quick recap of where we're up to in our letter. I know it's early days, but, but it is important. So, <clears throat> uh, so, so far we, we've talked about who Paul is, what an apostle is, this mission, this, this apostleship that he's received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and particularly, uh, we talked about how it's actually Jesus Christ who has come for the purpose of saving us. And, and what is he saving us from? Uh, verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, Who gave himself for our sins to what rescue us from this present evil age. And this is going to be very important as we move through the passage we're examining here this morning. So Paul expresses at the start of this passage, he just expresses his astonishment that people are so quickly turning away from this good news that has been proclaimed to them. So quickly turning to something else 
as their form of salvation. He's, he's actually just astonished by it. He talks about that, that it's actually not any other good news that they've turned to, but it's actually a distortion of the good news that they receive that they're actually turning to, and they're turning away from Christ in the process. I think he wants to make that very clear, that, that you don't get to take Jesus, the message of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, add to it, tweak it a bit, and then still call it the message of Jesus Christ. Um, and Paul, Paul emphatically lays out it. Paul is making a very emphatic point at this point. Like I said last time when we, when we finished our last sermon, I said, you know, Paul's gonna t- he's going to change his tone. He's going to change his tone as soon as we hit verse 6. Paul, I believe, is very incensed at this point. He's incensed that they are so quickly turning to this other message, and they are turning away from the one who called them, turning away from, from Jesus, and he is upset, and so upset, in fact, that he gets very strong language here in our passage. In fact, so strong, he pronounces curses on those who have actually distorted this gospel. That's some pretty strong language, and we're going we're to actually work our way through that and what that means and what I think Paul is actually getting at when he does that. Um, and then straight after that, in verse 10, verse 10, after this strong language, he comes out and says, so who's, I'm paraphrasing here, and sometimes, you know, we all do this, I think. I think we all tend to read um, the people in the Bible with our own voice, you know, with our own with our own sort of characteristics. And I, I, I read this, and I, I, what I hear Paul basically saying is like, you know, these guys, they're cursed. Who's the people pleaser now? Who's the people pleaser now, huh? Because this is what I think Paul had been accused of, is being a people pleaser by preaching this gospel that he had been preaching. And so that's a, a quick, very quick overview of our passage. And so let's, let's start digging in. Let's start digging into the text here. And the first question I have for us is, is there really no other gospel? Is there really no other gospel? Now, the reason why I ask this is, well, the text here on the page says that there is no other gospel. But if you know anything about the first century Greco-Roman context, you would know that that's actually just not true. And... Whenever I come across something like this, when, when the Bible emphatically said something very plainly in the text, and we know something to be historically untrue or whatever, I always have questions. I have questions about, well, what does that mean? In what way is it being said? For instance, when Jesus says, when he's, you know, he tells the parable of the mustard seed, and he says, well, the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. And we go, okay, well... We, we know that the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. We, we know of other seeds that are smaller than the mustard seed. But we understand that Jesus is speaking in an agric- agricultural context, and he's talking in very basic terms. Like, you know of all the seeds that you scatter and all the seeds that you plant. You know, the mustard seed is the smallest seed. In the same way, when Paul says here that there is no other gospel, I want to understand what he actually means. Because, you see, the word gospel is... It's not a very special term. It it simply just means, in the Greek, it just means good news. That's it. It means good news. Now, historically, what good news, or or the the Greek word is euangelion, what these good news proclamations would normally come about, they would come about because of some victory in battle, 
They would come about uh, as a result of maybe conquering another nation. Uh, for instance, Rome, as they would conquer other nations and they would subjugate other peoples, they would talk about there's the good news of Rome. There is what was called the peace of Rome or the Pax Romana, that now it is good news that Rome has come to your land because now your land can be at peace. And that should be good news to all of you. There's another story. Um, there's another story that I have down here um, uh, from ancient Greece uh, that talks about um, where uh, the Battle of Marathon. And it says, uh, th this is the story. In retribution for the Greek city-states helping the Ionian revolt against the Persian Empire, the Persian king Darius I invaded the Mediterranean with the might of the Persian Empire. The mission was simple. Punish the Greeks for their offense against the superpower of the day and bring them into subjugation under the Persian Empire. This Persian tide, however, would be turned back at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC. Through strategic positioning and no doubt some good luck, the Athenian army was able to defeat the Persians who outnumbered them, some say as much as 10 or 20 to 1. At their victory, the Athenian army dispatched a runner to run the 25 or so miles back to Athens to tell them of what had just happened. Upon arriving, he proclaimed, Joy to you, we won. He then collapsed and died. That man's name was Pheidippides, and he proclaimed a gospel that day in Athens. So a gospel is, is a proclamation of good news. It's a proclamation of good news. Um, and these proclamations of good news would happen in the ancient world and in the ancient context. And so when Paul says here, when Paul says here that they're turning to a different gospel, not that there is another gospel, we should have reason to question, what is it that Paul means? What is it that Paul means when he says that there is no other gospel? And I think, I think, I think what Paul is honing in on is that there is no other gospel quite like this gospel. Because he says that there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is a significant key word for us, the gospel of Christ. Christ is not just Jesus' last name. Do we know that? It's actually a title. You know, we call him Jesus Christ. His mother was not Mary Christ. You know, his brother's not James Christ. Christ is a title. And it comes from the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek word um, that was used for anointed one or Messiah. So when we say Christ, we're saying Messiah. And this is very important for us when, when we consider the Jewish context and all these sorts of things. They had been waiting. They had been waiting since Genesis chapter 3 for a Messiah. They had been waiting. They had been waiting for the God of heaven to come and to crush the head of the serpent. They had been waiting for this euangelion to come and to do something for the, for, the, for the one to come from heaven to rescue the earth. And this one who had come in the person of Jesus Christ, he had come with a good news. He had come and gave himself for our sins to set us free from this present evil age. And what Paul wants to get at, what Paul really wants us to hone in on, and he wants his listeners to hone in on, is that there is no other good news coming from heaven. This is not one good news amongst many good newses. 
There is only one good news from heaven, and that is the message of Jesus Christ. That is the message of Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins once and for all. You know, the book of Hebrews would elaborate on this idea that the, that the priests would work day and night. They would work every day in the temple, sacrificing uh, on behalf of the people. And every year there would be a reminder on the Day of Atonement that sin really hadn't yet been dealt with yet. But the great high priest who is Jesus, having once made his sacrifice, sat down in this complete work. And in Jesus Christ, Paul recognizes that this finished work of Jesus Christ is the good news that the world has been waiting for, and particularly that the Jewish people have been waiting for all of these years. And there is no other. There is no other. And it's my belief, it is my belief that that claim is still true today. That Jesus is still the good news from heaven. That he is still able to rescue us from the power of sin and death that permeates our lives. That he is still the only one who is able to bring me and bring you into a reconciled relationship with our Heavenly Father. You know, the world today is enamored with pluralism. The world today is enamored with with picking and choosing bits and pieces from all sorts of different religions to create their own bespoke spiritual practice that, that benefits them and all these sorts of things. And, and on one level, on one level, that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know? Like, as in, I heard somebody say one time, it's like, if Hindus ate breakfast, is eating breakfast bad? Not necessarily. You know, we talk about meditation and people sometimes panic because they're like, well, you know, Eastern religions focus on meditation. It's like, well, yeah, the Bible talks about meditation too, you know. So in that one sense, that's not necessarily bad. But, but none of these religions, from my perspective and, and in, in my sort of reading of things, none of these is actually able to set us free from sin. You might develop self-discipline. You might be able to better control yourself. Or, or perhaps by meditation, you can maybe find a little bit more peace in your life. But there is no other name. There is no other good news who not only reconciles me to God by His grace, but there is no other name that washes me clean of my sins. And there is no other name who transforms me, not by my own striving and, and, and working it up, but He transforms me by His abiding presence. So there is no other good news coming from heaven. Jesus is it, and He is the ultimate. And he is the good news that the world has been waiting for. And so Paul understands this. And he's making this emphatic point. So that when he says, he moves into chapter, uh, sorry, not chapter, verse 8. So emphatic is he in this point that there is no other gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached, a curse be on him. A curse be on him. You know, it's fascinating to me. I was like, as I was preparing this, like, you know, it's fascinating to me that the Mormon religion is founded upon an angel coming and bringing 
another message from heaven. And yet Paul here explicitly says, that's, that's like a big disqualifier. <laughs> Anyways. But Paul gets emphatic with his language. He gets very strong with his language. He says, a curse be on him. And as we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. And so the question is to curse or not to curse. That is the question. Now, if I was in an American context, I would have to clarify, we don't mean swearing. Um, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was looking up some articles just to see you know, what other people had said about you know, cursing in the Bible and all sorts of stuff. And it was so difficult to get past all the American articles on why it's bad to swear. Um, I just feel like, I'm just like, no, I want you to talk about the thing that I'm talking about. <laughs> not the, anyways, um, so to curse or not to curse. Paul wants his readers to understand the seriousness of his claims. He doubles down and says that even here an angel comes and brings another revelation, let them be cursed. Let them be anathema. That's the underlying Greek word. Let them be anathema. Let them be cut off and set apart for destruction. So the question then is why? Remember, I want you to be curious. I don't want you to just accept things at face value. I want you to ask questions. Why? Is Paul so incensed that he can't help but unload on these guys? Is that what's happening here? Paul has just lost his temper. He's forgotten to count to ten, and he's just like, you know what? If anybody contradicts me, you know what? Even if I contradict me, you're cursed. After all, haven't you all been so angry with somebody before that you uh, maybe have pronounced some things over their life? Maybe not the most godly things? Based on Paul's example here, let's ask ourselves the question, is it okay for Christians to sometimes curse people? Because I've heard of pastors who have pronounced curses on people who have opposed their ministry before. I've heard that. I want us to consider, though, Jesus' teaching. I'm going to pull out Jesus here. Get me out of this. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's another passage that comes to mind in Jude, and it talks about um, when, he's, when Jude is quoting the assumption of Moses, and he says, you know, even when... Uh, even when Michael was contending with Satan over the body of Moses, he did not even dare, he did not even dare to condemn, or it was either condemn or rebuke um, Satan, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. He left it in the Lord's hands. It, it's my contention, it's my contention that as Christians, it's not the Christian's business to be going around cursing things. Our words are meant to be words of life. Our words are meant to be words that build people up. Our words are meant to be words that set people free, not bind them under the chains of curses. And so if that's true, and I wholeheartedly believe that's true, what is Paul actually doing here? The exact opposite of what I've just said. If only he had consulted me. That's a joke, by the way. For <laughs> Some people are very serious. They <laughs> so what is really going on here? 
And I think I have a better reading. I don't think Paul is just loosey-goosey, losing his top, and he's just pronouncing a curse. I think what Paul is happening here, I'll explain. So when we read a passage that is confusing or, or challenging, it is very important that you read the passage in its context. So you read the passage, and then you, then you read the paragraph around it. And if you still don't understand exactly what's going on, you read in a wider circle, in a wider circle. So uh, we want to read it in our context. Now, what you'll actually find is if you read all the way out to, say, chapter 3, that this is not the first time, well, sorry, it is the first time, but it's not the only time in this letter that Paul actually mentions a curse. Chapter 3, verse 10. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. What I will suggest to you is that the reason why Paul is so angry and the reason why Paul speaks so strongly is not because he's lost his temper and is now lashing out, but he's lost his temper because these false teachers are actually trying to bring these Galatians back under a cursed way of living. Remember Paul... Uh, remember that Paul will also go on to say that this law, this law has no ability to give life. And so righteousness had to come another way. It had to come another way. And so I think that the reason why Paul is so angry here is because what he is witnessing is these people who he had preached this good news to, Gentile Christians no less, who had no background in the law. They, had no, they, they didn't have that, that cultural baggage to deal with. And what he's done is he's preached this good news that there has come this Messiah from heaven. And he has come to make all things new. And he has come to set you free from bondage and slavery to the principalities and powers. He has come to forgive you of your sin, to wash you clean. And then in that moment, seeing this church growing up underneath this gospel of Jesus Christ to then go away and then hear about these false teachers coming in and slowly beginning to enslave them back under the powers again through ritual practices, through obeying the works of the law and relying on the works of the law as a sign that I'm actually right with God. And that is what is making Paul so angry. And that is what is so dangerous. That is what is so dangerous. That when we take the free gift of grace that is in Jesus Christ and we start attaching works to it in order to, I don't know, round it out and make it feel more complete, we get into real dangerous territory. We get into real dangerous territory. The time, the time of works of the law the time of religious practices being the thing that brings you into right relationship with God is over. And it belongs to an age that is quickly passing. It is, belongs to a time that will come to an end. And all of those things will be destroyed. And so in verse 10, Paul says... For am I now trying to persuade people or God? 
or am I striving to please people? If I were still striving to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Like I said before, I, th I think one of the things that Paul faced by his opponents was the accusation that, Paul, you're making it too easy for people. You're making it too easy for people. Paul, we, we know, and remember, the, the, the people who are opposing him here are most likely the Judaizers. And so what they're attempting to do, what they're attempting to do is to get these Gentiles to, to become circumcised, to begin observing Sabbath, to begin practicing the works of the law. All those things that the law says that you should do in order to be faithful to God, they're, they're trying to get them to do those things in order for them to become more culturally Jewish and to even rely on those things as the sign that they are actually right with God. And when Paul comes along and says, no, this is a free gift of grace, and you can be reconciled to God, and you can receive it simply by turning and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. You can receive the Holy Spirit. You can receive that blessing from heaven simply by turning and trusting him. It's by faith in him alone. And his opponents, I think, were saying, well, see, Paul, what Paul is doing here is he's just trying to make it easy for people. He's just trying to make it easy for people. He's, you know what Paul is? Paul's a people pleaser. And they would have gone and said, look, Paul, you know, he, he's maybe well-meaning. He might be well-meaning, but look, he hasn't given you the whole truth. You see, we're the Jewish people. We're God's chosen people. And look, we have this long history with God. We have this long history, and Jesus is our Messiah too, and we just want to fill you in on the details that Paul left out. You know, I understand he wanted to give you the, the gospel light version here um, and make it easy for you, but that's just Paul. He's a people pleaser. He just wants to kind of get you in the door, but let us, let us complete, let us complete this work by adding the law of Moses to, to what's going on here. And I think Paul is expressing his frustration here, and he's, he's challenging that claim in that moment because he's just been willing to stand up and go, anybody who's teaching you that, they're cursed. They are living under a curse. And I think he's expressing his frustration in that moment and, and challenging that idea. Given the strong language that he's just used, is it likely that he is a people pleaser in this moment? Who's he trying to please? Who is he trying to please? He says that if I am trying to please people, then I am no longer a servant of Christ. I am no longer a servant of Christ. And next week we're going to jump into um, the, 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 the next passage in our, our letter where, um, where Paul actually starts to bring receipts against the, uh, the Judaizers. And he begins to unpack uh, this narrative of, of how he came uh, how he came to know the gospel and his story and history uh, with, with uh, the Jewish people and all these sorts of things, and we're going to get to that. But I want to ask us one final question here this morning. What does any of this have to do with us? It's the last one. What does this have to do with us? Because remember, when we're reading Scripture... Our goal, our goal when we're reading Scripture is to, is to hear what the author is saying, understanding who they are and what their motivations are and all these sorts of things. We want to hear what they're saying. We want, we want to try and understand the people who they're writing to. 
so that we can understand this conversation that's taking place. And, and by listening into this conversation, the Holy Spirit actually takes that and begins to work in our hearts. We, we receive revelation through our hearts are taught through this process of listening to the scriptures, listening to what it has to say. It enriches our hearts and it enriches our lives and it works in just in the most beautiful and mystical way. But when we read this, we have to ask ourselves, well, what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with us? You see, we actually run the risk. We actually run the risk of going in the opposite direction in some ways to what, to what Paul was facing. You see, what Paul was facing was, was people saying, you're making it too easy, Paul. You're making it too easy. And in our day, we may well have just made it a little bit too easy. And what I mean by that is that we have preached a gospel in such a way that we've said to people, all you need to do is raise your hand and you're in. All you need to do is pray a simple prayer and you're in. And, and we haven't really done well in our discipleship culture. We haven't really done well in teaching people what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. Yes, it is a free gift of grace, but living faithfully to Jesus actually does look like something. It just doesn't look like works of the law. And we certainly don't rely upon our works to be the foundation of our justification. We don't rely upon our works as being the foundation of, of being right with God. But we have said to people in a meeting, if you, if you feel in this moment you want to give your life to Jesus, and then go out, and then there's like no follow-up, there's, no, you know, there's no change of life, there's none of that, we are at risk, I think, of making it too easy on people. In fact, there's people today there's people today who are like, no, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And if you ask them, well, why? Well, because I was, I was baptized when I was a kid. Okay, so who is Jesus to you? Well, you know, I was baptized when I was a kid. Okay, so you have no relationship with him. Your life is not being transformed by him. You have no relationship with Holy Spirit. What is it, would you say, that actually makes you a Christian? Like, like how, how are you still calling yourself part? Of, how is your conscience at ease when, that, when all it is is, well, I got baptized as a kid? So what I think this has to do with us is this, and I want you to think about this, is have you been relying on your Christian culture to know that you're right with God? The fact that you came to church this morning that's what makes you right with God. Has that, has, has, that, has, that been, has that been something that you have been relying upon? Because remember, Paul will say in, in Galatians 3, he says it's those who rely upon the works of the law. You know, the Jews didn't culturally not become Jewish when Jesus came. The Jews continued to practice the Jewish religion with Jesus but they had a fundamental shift in understanding that it's not actually their Jewish culture that made them right with God. 
So they still practiced Sabbath. They, like, they, they still did so many of those things. But it was a shift in reliance away from those things and to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that they understood that at a foundational level. And for us, as we come here to the end of Christendom, actually, we are already at the end of Christendom. We are in a post-Christian era. There are still some people who are hanging on, hanging on from a time when coming to church was a culturally normal thing to do, and coming to church was the thing that you knew made you a Christian and made you right with God. Or perhaps you're sitting here and you're sitting here in church because your parents are Christians. And you figure, well, you inherited it. And maybe you did inherit your, 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 Christian, your parents' faith. But there are so many, so many who feel like, well, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christian. I grew up in church. Or I went to Bible college. Where I've seen signs and wonders. Remember that there will be some, Jesus said there will be some in those days that will have cast out demons, have performed miracles in his name, and on that day they'll stand before him and he will say, I never knew you. So the question then is this, are you abiding in Christ? Are you abiding in him? Not reliant upon any of your own good works. Not reliant upon your, your spiritual practices as the tick of approval that you're right with God. But are you connected to the only source that can actually bring salvation and life? Are you actually connected to the only source that can bring salvation and life? Because there is no other gospel. There is no other gospel. So Hannah, could I get you to come back? I would love if you you could just stand with us. If we could get the prayer team to come forward as well. that has been you this morning, I would actually just invite you to respond. I would invite you to respond to Jesus here this morning. If you recognize that in your life you have been you've been relying perhaps on the Christianity of others around you to give you a sense of assurance that you're okay. I'd invite you to repent of that this morning and come to the Savior afresh. If you've been relying on your own goodness and righteousness, well, I do good things and I help people and I'm kind to people. Don't stop doing those things, but please don't think that that is what makes you right with God. I would would invite you to, to repent of that this morning. 